You asked for it. A deep dive into Dave Ramsey's investment advice. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions. He's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Yeah, Brian, so this one is going to be kind of interesting. We sort of asked the audience out there, hey, you know, we've talked about Dave Ramsey's investment advice in the past. Would you be interested if we did a bit of a deeper dive? What are some things that are good? What are some things that maybe aren't so good? And what's our take on it? And there was a resounding yes from the audience that they wanted to hear it. So here we are to share our thoughts. I, I feel like we need to lay out some ground rules, though. I mean, we do live in Franklin, Tennessee. Yep. And we're kind of in the backyard of the big dog himself, That's Dave right. Ramsey. And, and here's the thing. You can't live in our parts and not have neighbors, mm-hmm. people that you go to church with. You know, there's a lot of, you know, of Ramsey solutions that are sure. all in the community. And by the way, if you are here thinking you're going to see a show where Ramsey solutions or Dave Ramsey has trashed, you're in the wrong place. We actually happen. We have tremendous respect for Dave. And I think if you even... As we poke holes in some things that I think that Dave has gone astray on and you can improve upon, there is no doubt that Dave has done more good to the financial world than anything else. Yeah, if we just wanted to kind of look at some of his quick accomplishments, uh, he has over 14 million listeners to his weekly radio show. He sold over 11 million books. He has... This says, this is from the website, over 800 uh, team members. I know that just because I have some friends who are there, it's like 950 employees. So you think about like how many lives is impacted. And this one I thought was just absolutely remarkable. More than 5 million folks have gone through Financial Peace University. So if you you did this exercise a while back, Bo, I I can't remember you saw a speaker or somebody and you you named out some big brands and you had to come up with one word to describe them. And so if you throw out Ramsey Solutions, what's the one word that that comes up? In my mind, it's debt. Yeah, so I think Dave, there is nobody that gets you out of debt better than Dave Ramsey. So what I'm trying to figure out, though, is we know Dave does so much good with getting people out of debt. He talks about the 80% that's behavior, the yep. 20% that's in your head. What does that mean towards investments, though? Because is is there space to know that there maybe is some additional things that you ought to consider. Yeah. So a lot, one of the things that I think is amazing is I will have uh, family members or relatives who I tell them all the time about, hey, here are the things that you want to do to like get out of credit card debt or to pay this off. And no matter what I say, how I communicate, somehow it doesn't, doesn't sit with them. But then all of a sudden their church offers like Financial Peace University, they go through it and they come and tell me, hey, you won't believe what I just and, learned. And they're on fire for the concept. And I'm like, I've been telling you this for like months and years. <laughs> but then what ends up happening is they kind of get through that iteration and they do say, okay, now I'm ready to start building wealth. And this is what Dave said about investing. And that's where I always have to kind of say, oh, well, maybe that's not exactly perfect. So let's. Just, I want to go a little deeper in this because Dave does talk about the 80% that's behavior, 20% that's headspace. Well, there's also, I think it goes beyond that, is that we know that the lion's share of Americans struggle with basic things, what I consider common sense of they can't get out of debt. They don't have the discipline to understand it. And we've often said there is, and you just mentioned it, there will come a graduation or a jump-off point where you need to go beyond common sense. And I think that's where we fit in. We are not the 80% or the, the portion of the public that struggles with basic behavioral stuff, 
we know that our audience are maximizers. Yep. They're kind of the money masters. We know that if this doesn't hit you, it's just you're not there yet. We are focusing on the 20% that wants to make sure every dollar in your army of dollars has a purpose and knows what they're doing, and you want to maximize yep. it. So that's what we're going to focus on, and that's what we're going to look at through that lens to see how does Dave's investment strategies how do they fit into what we know as financial advisors about wealth creation? So if we're going to talk about uh, areas where possibly he misses it or possibly hits it, one of the questions you might be asking, well, what is Dave Ramsey's investment advice? So we actually went out to Ramsey Solutions, and I think this is on Chris Hogan's website, and he basically lays out how to diversify your portfolio. If you're structuring an investment portfolio, Dave likes using mutual funds. He likes using active mutual funds, and he thinks that an investment strategy should look something like this. 25% in international, 25% in growth and income, 25% in aggressive growth, and 25% in growth. That certainly sounds easy. doesn't sound like that's a hard thing to put together. Well, it sounds very broad and it sounds very growth-oriented, but I do like, because I, I think this is something that got fine-tuned as Chris came in as part of Ramsey Solutions, is he goes a step further. He actually tells you what are those broad descriptions like aggressive growth, growth and income? Is there uh, you know, large cap, mid cap, sure. international? So what's, what's the deeper dive on that? So if you look at the details, growth and income, these are the big companies. These are the ones that have a market cap above $10 billion. Well, if you were to ask us at, a, at the Money Guy Show or Bound Wealth what that is, that's really large cap holdings, yeah. large cap U.S. companies. Well, then they said there's this growth asset class, and that generally tends to be companies that are somewhere between $2 billion to $10 billion. Well, we would just call those mid-sized or mid-cap companies. And then there's this aggressive growth, these high risk, high returns. These are companies that are smaller. They're less than $2 billion. So we would just call that small cap. Now, all three of these are U.S. These are all yep. domestic. U.S. large cap, U.S. mid cap, U.S. small cap. And then lastly, there's this international bucket, companies that are outside of the United States. So this is Dave's portfolio. It doesn't matter if you're 20, 65. I didn't see anything about bonds in there. Nope. It's all equities, 25, 25, 25, 25. So that leads to, now let's kind of pivot. And I want to talk about what are, where are the areas that we think Dave goes astray and then how do you fix it if you yep. are at that graduation point that you want to go beyond common sense? And so we were trying to think about the best way to lay this out. And we said, mm -hmm. you know, they're really, if we, if we break this down in its basest form, we think there are probably three problems with Dave's investment strategy. And we think that those three problems are, number one, Dave does not like index investing. We're going to talk about while we fall on the other yeah. side of that. Number two is Dave doesn't balance risk and return in our opinion. We think if you're going to be an investor, there's a better way to do that than what Dave recommends. And then Dave has a one-size-fits-all approach to investing. No matter where you are in your life cycle or life stage, this investment portfolio makes sense for you. So we want to kind of go a deep dive into all three of these and then even tell you, I think it goes a step further, how do you fix it? Sure. I think that's an important. I don't like people just to sit in the cheap seats, start throwing popcorn yep. at, at, without giving you solutions. So we're actually going to do a deeper dive into every one of these. So let's kind of jump into the first one. Yep. Dave dislikes index investing. Yeah, you know, I, I think there's a quote, and you pulled this from, this is a blog on, on Dave's website, right? Oh, it's on Chris Hogan's. On Chris's website. It says, yep. Uh, I recommend front-load funds. With this type of fund, you pay fees and commissions up front when you make your investment. This approach allows your money to grow without being bogged down by expensive management fees. Also, pay attention to the fund's expense ratio. A ratio higher than 1% is considered expensive. Well, we know. I mean, 
when you're talking about 1% internal operating expenses, that hasn't been the case since the 90s. That doesn't just sound expensive to me. That sounds really, really expensive. It, it's a little outdated because we know index investing has revolutionized. There has been a price war that's been going on, and you, the consumer, have been the beneficiaries of this. And a big driver of that is index investing. So we think the solution actually is index investing is a powerful tool for wealth building. Yeah, and that's if you look at how we manage money to bound wealth, how we've been doing it for decades now, uh, we love taking advantage of index funds. We, in our opinion, there are some clear advantages to using indexes. But I don't think that we're the only ones who figured this well, out. Well, I was worried because, look, there's no doubt you just saw it. 950 employees. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they are huge. Dave, there's no doubt. You can't – the good that he's doing is awesome. But I think a lot of people would say, what do you guys know? Dave is super successful. Who sure. are you to question? And that's why I was like, is there a third party? Is there a source to show that the system is changing? Yep. The whole world is – and here's what we found. If you look at cash flows, meaning how much money is inflowing into investments versus how much money is coming out of investing, this graphic will blow your mind. I think from 2010 all the way until 2019, there has been an outflow from actively managed funds of about $1.8 trillion that has flown into indexes. So when you talk about that sum of money, that large... Something must be changing. Something must be shifting. And you can see it's leaving the active management and it's going into the passive so indices. So here's what we've been creating content since 2006. When I first started doing index investing shows, I used to be able to headline it and be like, the best investment that only 50% of investors yeah. have or, you know, or something or 30% of investors. Now it's getting to where I think a lot of you guys have figured out index investing is pretty good. And let us tell you the three key benefits, and we'll do a deep dive on each one of these, to index investing. Yep. So the very first is it generally tends to be more tax efficient. And we talk about tax efficiency inside of index investing. The real thing that we're talking about is annual turnover that happens inside of the fund. Because as you know, a mutual fund or an ETF is really just a bucket of holdings with a bunch of underlying stocks under underneath. So if you wanted to have like the S&P 500 rather than having to go buy all 500 different companies, you can just buy one mutual fund and inside that mutual fund is housed all of those companies. Well, actively managed funds do the same thing. They're trying to pick and choose what companies you're buying, what companies you're owning inside of the fund. Well, when they do that, they are generating turnover inside of the portfolio. Yeah, I think, I mean, if you think of this from a human nature standpoint, an active manager is going to feel like he's got to be doing something sure. to earn his keep. So you're going to see lots of buying and selling. Every time you buy and sell, just like you have to pay taxes when you buy and sell individually yourself, so does your institutional manager. So th those transactions cost money. That's they right. cost taxes. Index funds, by their sheer design, I mean, you hear about the rumor right now, Tesla might be joining the S&P 500. They'll drop, meaning that they'll drop some other old-timer type stock that's kind of become outdated. You know, think about it like Kodak. Sure. It used to be an S&P 500. Yep. As people don't use, you know, that, that type of yeah. technology, it falls off new stuff. But it's only a few things change. So it's very low transactions, very few trades. And we took it a step further. We actually did a show, our index show we did a while back. We went a deep dive on this. Mm -hmm. We really nerded out. So if you like this, go a deeper dive with us. And that we talked about turnover ratio. We talked about also just the tax efficiency. And we used the largest 
holdings out there. We use the Vanguard S&P 500, mm-hmm. and we also use the Growth Fund of America, which yep. is American funds. And then I believe we use the Contra the Fund. The Fidelity Contra Fund. And what we said is, based on the turnover that's taking place in the portfolio, how much performance is lost to that tax drag? And that's actually called the tax cost ratio. And what we found is if you look at this over a one-year, five-year, 10-year basis, you can see like American Funds Growth Fund of America actually loses about 1.9% per year to tax cost over a five-year time period. That number is about 1.4% over the 10-year period. So and then you look at the, the, if you look at the Vanguard 500 Index, which is the S&P 500, at a minimum, it's going to be half, meaning it's only going to have a half. It's going to be a half a percent cheaper, and but it very well could be over one percent right. annual performance difference. So tax efficiency definitely has an impact on your performance. So don't think we're saying, "Hey, managers just are horrible." It's also in just how these things are designed, and you need to understand what components go into total performance. It's how much you keep after taxes, fees, and everything else. So not only. Uh, our indexes, in our opinion, more tax efficient, we found just frankly, it is a cheaper way to invest. If the two things that you can control inside your investment portfolio are the taxes you pay and the fees you pay, and we know that they're more tax efficient, we need to then point our attention to what are the fees that we're paying inside of the funds we're investing in. So I had, because I've shared with you guys, I've been doing this long enough. I've been managing money since the 90s. Internal operating expenses when I came out were around one and a half percent. You heard in Dave's advice, he was talking about making sure your internal expenses are below one percent. Now realize, Dave's had this advice for a while, so I'm not saying that he was wrong when he designed it, it's just that I think things have evolved and changed Mm -hmm. to a degree. The averages have been coming down naturally, and I would say that has a lot to do with the pressure of all the flows coming out of active management Mm -hmm. Going into index investing that the active managers have woken up and go, "Uh uh-oh, we better get serious and sharpen the pencils because look at where the average internal expenses are, Bo. Yeah, so if we look at uh, three different types of funds, just domestic equity here in the U.S., uh, world equity, international funds, and then just looking at like bond or hybrid funds, you can see that the average cost internal expense of an actively managed domestic fund is about 1.12% right now. But the average index fund that's domestically that's domestic equity is only about 0.42%. And if you think about it, because you see that, you're like, what, is, what does that mean, mm-hmm. really? If you were investing $1,000, that would be on that 1.12. You can see that that quickly could add up to, you know, $4. And I mean, that could add up to, you know, $10, $11 in... 20 cents. 20 cents, right. Um, whereas on the index fund, that's talking about $4.20 mm-hmm. out of your 1000 Yep. Here's the dirty little secret. Index funds have actually gotten a lot cheaper than what this is showing us because there's a lot of holding companies. If you think about broker-dealers mm-hmm. and others that are trying to keep up, but they just, they if you just go to direct, if you way. go to direct like Vanguard, Fidelity, the internal expenses of their index funds are 0 one. So That's we're right. talking about on $1,000, instead of it being $4.20, it's a dime. Yep. Point, point one. one. So that's a dime. So, I mean, there is a lot of money left on the table that these poor funds, these poor active managers, you kind of feel sorry for them. They have to overcome all these things before they can just keep up with the sheer design and nature of index investing. So you're probably saying, okay, I hear you, right? Uh, yeah, indices may be more tax efficient and uh, indices may be a cheaper way to invest, but 
the reason that people use active managers is because they can outperform. They have the magic sauce. They know what is required to go out there and beat the market. So what we actually found is that when you look at long-term investment performance, our opinion and the facts substantiate this is that indices have better long-term performance. Yeah, we've talked about the efficiency of the markets is pretty incredible. I want you to understand this, guys. If there are only 500 large cap stocks, U.S. companies, 500 the largest, you know who they are, Walmart, the Home Depots, your Googles. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what you're looking at. There's only 500 of them, yet you can throw rocks and hit financial advisors. People are in your grocery stores, they're in your banks. These guys are everywhere, these gals too. And the thing is, is that how can they, with technology and information flowing so freely, how does the guy down the street know any more than just how efficient the market and the information makes it out there to the public? I don't think it can. I I think it's just impossible for it to keep up. And the data supports this because guess what we have found, guys? If you're trying to figure out is the manager that much better because they already have to overcome the taxes, they have to overcome the fees, surely they're making great decisions. And when we have prospects and they go, hey, can you beat the S&P 500? I go, Nope. No, that's not, not even my do. goal. We're financial planners. We're helped to, here to help you navigate the financial world and make sure risk adjusted, you're getting the best rate of return possible. But we're not trying to beat the markets because the data shows that's practically impossible. Hit them with the data. Bro. So every year Spiva comes out with a study and this is from the 2020 data. And this is what they found over a 15 year period. of active managers in the U.S. large cap space underperform the index. Underperform. Underperform the index. If you look at mid cap, 82.2% of active managers underperformed their stated index. If you look at small cap, 82.2% underperformed their active index. And then if you look at international, 87.8% of active managers underperform their index. So the four asset class categories that Dave is suggesting you utilize, it is very, very difficult to pick who the top manager is going to be on a consistent basis over any meaningful period of time. I can already hear the whispers. Somebody's like, wait a minute, guys, you're missing it. That means there's a chance because there's, there is so a, 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 a there is definitely there's at least a 12 to 13 percent chance I'm going to choose that winner. Here's the other dirty little secret: if you take the 12 or 13 percent that win in that single year versus the index, they don't have a consistency. Right. Meaning that if they fall off in year two, year three, year four, meaning they might beat the uh, the index one year, but they don't consistently. Beat the index. That's a problem. Guys, save yourself a lot of heartache. The index is going to be the way that you want to save that money, save the taxes, and also get the performance. I don't think we can beat that drum any harder. Yeah, what I think is beautiful is, do you know how many years or how often the index matches the performance of the index? Every single year. Yeah. It's that easy. Why try that guess, play that guessing game trying to get into that 13%? when you can just participate in the 87%. So let's pivot now. We've talked about index vesting. Sure. I think it is a solution to your wealth building strategies. Here's number two. Dave doesn't balance risk and return. That sounds kind of harsh, but Yeah, I feel like he doesn't, uh, at least in, in the way that he describes investment, he doesn't understand the risk and return trade-off. So what can you do? 
you can understand that generally speaking, there is a risk and return trade-off that does exist in the financial marketplace. So when you're learning like investment management 101, they talk about the efficient frontier. Sure. They talk about that the further out the risk spectrum you go, the better rate of return yep. you're anticipating. That's why if you think about it, when you're a young investor, when you know you won't touch that money for 30 or 40 years, you ought to be wild. Mm -hmm. You just ought to be crazy. You ought to so also should celebrate yep. the volatility that comes with that. But we, uh, we know over time, things change. We'll talk about that in a little greater sure. detail as well. But I want to focus on first, if we're going to take risk, meaning if we're going to be a bear, we're going to be a grizzly bear, how do we get the most return for all this risk we're willing to take? And this is what Investopedia says. They say that the risk reward trade-off is an investment principle that indicates higher the risk, the higher the potential reward. Well, remember, if you look at Dave Ramsey's investment strategy, it was 25% large cap, 25% mid cap, 25% small cap, 25% international. No fixed income, 100% equity portfolio, and it's a 100% equity portfolio that invests in more aggressive equity asset classes. So if it's further out there on the risk spectrum, the return ought to be better. So you, you're thinking like a 20-year-old who can really go wide open on the risk this thing's probably killing it long sure. term, right? Right. Guys, this is there's a trade-off. I'm telling you, we compared this to just the boring old S&P 500. And a lot of you guys, wait a minute, Dave uses active managers. What did you guys use? I will tell you, to do this analysis, we did have to assume, because we know that the four different groups that Dave used, we were very generous and we let Dave's asset investment use the index yep. fund. Because like we said, between 82 to 87% of active managers underperformed. So I felt like we were being quite generous letting Dave's portfolio use the indices for this analysis. So what we set up is let's see if 25% in the large cap index and 25% in the mid cap index and 25% in the small cap index and 25% in the international index, does it actually equate to a better risk reward trade-off than just buying the market, just going out and buying the S&P 500? So when we look at the raw performance, we did highlight this. This is from Morningstar.com. We yep. put this in. This is as of, so you don't think we cherry-picked. This is as of June 30th. As of, I mean, this is the yep. most recent period that we could go grab a month end to do this analysis. And you quickly see, if you look at the three-month, if you look at the one-year, three-year, five-year, ten-year, that four-prong approach that Dave recommends compared straight up to the S&P 500 underperforms in every one of the time periods. Said a little bit differently, an investor over this, this is a 10-year time frame that you're looking at, would have been better served, instead of doing Dave's philosophy, just going out there and buying the market, just buying the S&P 500. So it goes, we went a little deeper, because we, like we said, we want you to understand, what is your financial advisor's job? They are to make sure you're getting the best risk-adjusted rate of return. Right. So it's not only absolutely how much money I can make, it's how much money can I make with a certain level of risk. Well, we've already agreed. This type of portfolio should be risk-on type investing. Yep. I mean, Dave is 100% equity investing, so this thing better be making money. We can already see performance. There's a little bit of lag. How does it stack up when you look at risk and reward in that efficient frontier? So if you're someone out there who's listening on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, you may want to go to YouTube because there's a really interesting illustration on there, and this is what the illustration shows. It's, a, it's an X and Y axis, and the further you move on the X axis from left to right, the more risk you're taking. The further you move from the y-axis, bottom to top, the greater your rate of return. Well, what you'll notice is all th or three of the four 
asset classes that or two of the four asset classes that Dave recommends are taking a lot more risk than the S&P 500, but getting a much lower rate of return. The third of those is taking less risk, but also getting a much lower rate of return. The only redeeming asset from a risk and reward trade-off relative to the S&P 500 is in fact the S&P 500. It's the one that has the, that's actually on the efficient frontier. So for those listening or those who even are seeing this visual that we have up on the screen right now, According to this, because we have all four holdings and then we have the total Ramsey portfolio smashed together and we put errors to draw attention. Dave is taking more risk, Mm -hmm. but getting less historic rate of return. That's not good. There's four quadrants here. There's the quadrant to the bottom left. That means you're taking less risk, but you're also getting less rate of return. You kind of expect that. When when we're dealing with bond investments or safe risk-off investments, you kind of count them to fall in that bottom left quadrant where you want your risk assets in the upper right quadrant, because that means you're taking more risk, but you're getting a better rate of return, where two of Dave's four investments fall is to the right of the S&P, meaning they're taking more risk, Mm -hmm. but they're underperforming. That's no man's land. You do not want your portfolio to be in the more risk, less return category historically. That means that you're you're just not risk efficient. It's inefficient from a risk and reward trade-off. That's exactly right. So one of the other things we thought we'd look at is, okay, well, what if we kind of stress test both of these? What if we kind of look at how does the how do these two portfolios look in the best of times and in the worst of times? It was kind of interesting because you can see we highlighted the worst is because it is is a noticeable difference. These same time periods, yep. but noticeable difference performance. Um, Bo, I don't mind just focusing on the one year and three year. The one year, like Dave's worst one year was lost about 18, 18%. It's 17.79, and it's right around April of 2019 to March of 2020. The S&P 500 during that same period only lost 7%. So that's uh, 10% around underperformance just in really the last year because this ended in March of 2020. If you extrapolate that and look at the three years, the worst three years – that Dave Ramsey's portfolio would have would have exhibited was losing a percent and a half per year from April of 2017 to th- through March of 2020. The S&P 500, the worst it would have performed, is actually annualizing 5% per year. A return, not a loss. Period. Yeah, they were actually making 5% per year over that three-year period. So, I mean, look, Dave's portfolio, I think for an aggressive investor, yeah, it, it's not going to destroy you. I'm just saying that risk adjusted, there might be a better way. If, if you're going to be aggressive, there's probably a better way to do it than implementing Dave's portfolio. So that leads to our third discussion, mm-hmm. because this is talking about if we're going to maximize performance, maybe that's not what we should be focused on. We should be talking about how do your needs change over time? And that leads to our third problem. Dave has a one-size-fits-all type of approach towards investing. You know, I think this is probably the one, Brian, that uh, I think is probably the most... I don't know if I say alarming or upsetting or the one that misses the most. Like, okay, there are folks that believe in active management. Okay, that's fine. There are folks that maybe don't have efficient portfolios. That's fine. This one really, really bothers me because I have uh, young friends who are just starting out in life and they want to go through Financial Peace University and they get to the investment piece. They're like, hey, I've got it figured out. This is what I want to do. And then I have elderly folks in my life that are at retirement or nearing retirement, and they just finished Financial Peace University. They say, okay, I'm at the investment piece. This is what I want to do. And the advice is the exact same. Yeah, and I I, I want to give you a a kind of a real-world example to show you that that's just not how 
things work. We all, I was, I think I had shared on an earlier episode, my dream car when I was between 16 to 20 was I was going on my 25th birthday, I was going to go buy a Corvette. Of course, because why, why wouldn't you go do that? Now, I had, the reason it was 25 for me, by the way, was because I knew I was already a smart, nerdy financial guy, even though I didn't have a, a you know, I was broke as a joke. I didn't have two nickels to rub together. As I knew at age 25, my insurance rates might drop. That's because right. we all know anybody who's 16 to 25, if you try to go buy a Corvette, it's going to cost you more for the insurance than it's going to cost you to make the car payments. That's right. Do you know the average age for a, of a, a Corvette purchaser, Bo? I'm going to take a shot in the dark and say it's not 25 years old. It is actually 59 years of age. That is, We've done that for other research. We know that for a fact is that the average age for a Corvette purchaser is 59 years of age. Guess what the cost of insurance on that same vehicle is for a 59-year-old? It's small. Yeah. Because guess what? 59-year-olds are not wild. They're not crazy. Meanwhile, that 21-year-old who buys a Corvette, the insurance company kind of knows, hey, if I give this insurance, for, I'm probably going to make – there's going to be a claim on this. This guy's going to wrap this thing around something at some point. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the same way with investing. You change over time. When you were 21 years of age, go wide open. I want you to be that wild person. Go out there and invest – but when you're 65 years old or even 59 and you just bought your Corvette, you know that the reason you can have that Corvette is because you're you're probably rewarding yourself as you quickly are approaching retirement. And once you're getting closer to retirement, you're thinking, you know what? I might need to live off this mm -hmm. money. I'm no longer, I'm not as much of a saver as I might start consuming some of these resources. I need to ensure that this money's here. So my cash reserves is no longer three to six months. It's now 18 to 36 mm -hmm. months. I mean, there's all kinds of things that will evolve and change when you compare a 20-year-old to a 65-year-old. That should be happening with your portfolio as well. So if the problem is Dave has a one-size-fits-all approach to investing, we think the solution is you need to recognize that your strategy should adjust over time. As your financial circumstances change, as the size of your portfolio changes, as all of the various factors of your financial life change, so too should the investment strategy that you're implementing. Well, and I think about it because, look, Dave, we know he was a real estate investor sure. at one point in his life. He still is. As a matter of fact, we living here in Nashville, Dave is a, a spectacular real estate uh -huh. investor. There's deals that sometimes make it across the Tennessee end where Dave will buy property in downturns, and then you'll see later where there's an article run on how much money he made. He gets it. It's unbelievable. But here's the thing. Real estate investors, cowboys, they take lots of risk. Risk is kind of their thing. And I always, when I have a business owner, a real estate investor, when they come in as prospects, I know that there's two components of risk we have to deal with. There's the risk tolerance. That's the cowboy section. They're willing. Can they can they absorb the amount of risk emotionally that they're not going to freak out if things are having volatility, if we're in an economic downturn? But the reality is I have to educate that cowboy or cowgirl mm -hmm. and say, look, you're now at the point that it's not only risk tolerance. It's this other concept called risk capacity. And that's what I was alluding to when I was talking about your cash reserves change. Your needs change in the fact that you need to make sure that you have a long enough time frame that if the market goes down, you can be there long enough for the recovery mm -hmm. so you're not selling you know, growth on assets that are way down in a market downturn, as well as to make sure you have cash flow to pay the bills. And, and the stakes are big. Obviously, what, you know, what we just showed is if you're a 21-year-old and you're being really aggressive, but maybe you don't have the risk and reward trade-off, you're probably still going to be okay. 
if you're someone who is 60 and you're nearing retirement, you're right there, this could be a very big deal if you get it wrong. So we did this. We said, okay, well, how's a way? How are we going to do this? We already have Dave's strategy. Mm -hmm. How are we going to go pull something out there so that somebody can see what somebody is quickly approaching retirement? And we just said, let's go grab a target retirement fund. And let's use an index target retirement fund. And here's what we came up with. Yeah, so we just said, let's look at the 2025. So this is someone who was in a few years of retirement. You know, they can see the runway. That's where they're moving relative to the Ramsey portfolio. Well, again, you can see if you're looking at this chart, as you move down the x-axis from left to right, you're taking more risk. As you move up the y-axis from bottom to top, you're getting a greater rate of return. Well, what you can see is that every one of Dave's holdings is taking significantly more risk. Three of the four are getting a lower rate of return. One of the four, the large cap one, is getting a greater rate of return. But if you smash them all together, Dave's portfolio is taking a lot more risk than just a uh, indexed 2025 target retirement fund, and it's getting a lower rate of return. So a lot of people go look at this chart, or they're going to hear us talking about this chart and go, all right, so Dave's taking more risk. We, by the way, historically, he's not even getting a great rate of return sure. above and beyond because there's been a lot of volatility in the last year or so that impacted this long-term yep. performance. But a lot of you guys are saying, okay, well, show me real-world examples of what that means for somebody who's probably 65 years old and is now probably needing to pull some money out to live off of these assets. What's the impact? So we, we pulled up and we created from Morningstar. What's the best and what's the worst performance over the, the best and worst of times so that we can see what you might be facing if you're a retiree? So if you are that person who's five years away from retirement, you think about how bad, you know, because of the stuff that we've been going through in the past couple months, how bad the last year from April 2019 to March of 2020 has been, would you rather be in a portfolio that lost 17.8%, which is what the Ramsey portfolio would have lost, or something with some mitigated risk that's only down about 7%. Again, it's a 10% swing. And then if you even stretch it out even further and you look at the three years, the worst three years for the Ramsey portfolio from April 2017 through March of 2020, it would have lost about 1.5% per year for those three years. If you were in a target date 2025 fund that's preparing to be more conservative, preparing for you to live off those assets, over that same time period from April of 2017 through March of 2020, it actually made about 3.7% per year each of those three years. Well, and I think now a lot of people go hear that and go, okay, yeah, yeah, I get it. Downturns, but fortunately, downturns only two out of every 10 years. But guys, even if you look at this as your maximization strategy of what it's going to do for you, I was kind of shocked to see that the premium that you're getting, because here's the thing you worry about, guys. When you have won the game, mm -hmm. do we, if you're watching a sport, back when we had sporting events on TV, do you ever, ever see anybody who's up five, six touchdowns in the last minute they start, you, you get so annoyed because they're taking a knee. Yeah. You know, they, they, they huddle around the quarterback and he just drops back and he takes a knee. It's because they've won the game. They don't want to start doing stupid stuff and blow it in That's the right. last minute. And we, by the way, we have case study. We knew somebody back when we were in Georgia, won the game, fabulously successful, wanted to help the kiddos out. So invested in a business with their son. Lost it all. Mm -hmm. Lost it all. I mean, it was it was horrible to watch somebody who had won the game. Financially independent. Financially independent, and then lose every bit of it trying to help a child out with a venture, which looked like initially making a fortune, 
then because of leverage debt got crushed. So I'm telling you, this stuff that we we know this from experience of three decades is that you can take too much risk after you've won the game, and that's just not appropriate. That's what we're you hire somebody like us so that we can balance what are your goals, what is the why for this money, so that you're not pushing forward when you've already won the game and potentially run yourself really into a bad situation. So you're probably sitting there thinking, okay, guys, well, now you've kind of just ruined it, right? So I had this investment strategy I thought that I had figured out, you know, 25, 25, 25, 25. But now you're saying I can't implement that or perhaps that's not the best. What should I do? What are the ways that I should think about that? So we thought it'd be interesting to just talk through all right, what's our strategy? Yeah. What are some things that we think about investing? What are some ways we look at portfolio construction? Well, I think I look at this when we put this together. This is how you make sure, ensure that we're not the two old men on the Muppets that are up there in the cheap seats picking on poor Dave uh-huh. without actually having some, some, some credibility or something to it. So that's why we did want to share what is the money guy strategy for how you should look at this. The first thing I want you to understand is Wealth creation is surprisingly simple. Now, don't mishear me. Simple does not mean easy mm-hmm. because there are three main components to wealth creation. You've got discipline. Yep. What discipline means is that you are going to take a little bit of, you're actually going to do deferred gratification. You're going to live on less than what you make. And that margin, that excess is going to be the second component, which is money Mm -hmm. that will be invested. And then you're going to give it time. You're going to give it the time. So you have discipline, money, and then enough time that wealth is actually created. Is that simple? Super easy. Uh, The second tenet is start simple and then graduate to sophistication. I hear you say this all the time, Brian. Complexity will f- have a way of finding yeah. you. You don't have to seek it out. So if you're someone who's just starting out and you haven't built up the two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollar investment portfolio, there's a chance that just using target retirement funds is a great solution for you. Start simple, get the basics down, then graduate to sophistication. And that leads to the next point. Because by the way, you can even use index versions of target retirement funds because we think index investing does work. If you don't believe it, just go watch the previous segment and look at all the benefits there are to index investing. The next thing we think is that allocation, how you're spreading out your assets, matters a lot more than security selection. We think that 90% of the return that you achieve is caused by the allocation of your assets, not over there picking which individual assets you're using. So if you get that piece right, you're already setting yourself up for success. And that leads to, and by the way, Dave gets this next portion. I think that this is something we he's squarely on the same camp. Investing is only one piece of the total puzzle. Yep. We've shared. Dave's great at getting people out of debt and making really good long-term financial decisions. It's just the investment could use a little tweaking. We're kind of the same way. As financial advisors, nobody should come to us thinking we're going to maximize and beat the S&P 500 right. every year. Our goal is to take your age, your goals, what are your whys for what you want your money to do for you, and can we make it all work and as efficiently and just make sure we're maximizing that strategy as much as possible. Our next 10 is that there, there are some things that you can't control when it comes to investing. There are some known, unknowns, but there are some things you can control. So focus on those, such as taxes, fees, and risk exposure. Don't try to fix what you can't fix, like which direction the market's going to go. Do try to fix what you can fix, how much you pay in taxes, what you pay in fees, and how much risk exposure you have in your portfolio. And then the next one is understanding that In uncertain times, diversification is going to be your friend. There are two human components that we're always trying to balance. 
It's the fear and the greed. You know, when you go through a market downturn like we had because in the first quarter this year, right after the first quarter and the second quarter with the pandemic and all the things going on, people are panicking. This is where Dave talks about all the behavioral components that people screw up. The majority of people screw up because they emotionally do not have an asset allocation that matches what they can handle from a behavioral standpoint, and they get in their way. So a good financial advisor will help you balance out that greedy side where you're making so much money in good economies that you think you need to go even further on the risk spectrum versus the fear of, oh my God, I've got to sell everything because I don't like how this feels. There is a balance that can make this feel much easier and better for you. And that's a perfect segue is we think that there is a time where maybe it makes sense to go pro. If you found that perhaps the numbers are large enough and the gravity of your decisions is so great, you don't want to go at it alone, maybe it makes sense to seek out some help. Perhaps because of all of life's different circumstances and all the things pulling you in different directions, there aren't enough hours in the day to put the attention on your finances or on your portfolio that you need to be putting there. Perhaps it makes sense to bring in someone to help you. And that's, and that's really the point where, because I, I think about all the different reasons people hire us. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of you guys, because I said we're beyond common sense. We're beyond, you're for, we're there for the 20% that are not struggling with basic behavioral debt issues and other things like that. It's more maximizing. Well, you might be different than your spouse. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about our relationships oh, with yeah. our spouses. I am kind of the nerdy one that focuses on things. And we have people all the time come to us and say, you guys think like I do. You get it. I want to make sure I hire you. So that if some, I'm not here to speak for yep. my family, that this thing keeps going. And so my family members don't get ripped mm-hmm. off and we keep this thing going. We get it. And that's what a lot of people, I think, also, one day you're going to wake up and you're going to say, wow, I'm kind of the CEO of a seven-figure holding company mm-hmm. here. And, and that's pretty powerful because we, one bad decision can just screw this whole thing after you've actually won the game. And that's why we do talk about Take the relationship to the next level, the abundance cycle. We love working with clients all across the country. It's truly an amazing thing. Now, look, I think it's worth saying again, uh, we love Dave. He has done wonderful things for the financial world. And a lot of times we'll send folks to Dave to go get out of debt, figure that out. But when it comes to investing, we think that if you are part of the 20%, you're part of the folks who can focus on optimization, Perhaps there's a better strategy than implementing Dave's investment strategy. Yeah, and I hope, like I said, we'll see how this plays out. I've often wondered, is this the one that's going to get us in trouble with the big guy? (laughs) I hope not because I did want to pay enough respect to the fact that Dave has done much more good than anything else. But it it is when he's in our territory when you start talking about investments that I felt like, and and look, I want to go ahead and give Dave the benefit of the doubt. He came up with this strategy a long time ago. And um, financial I, world has you know, so in the financial world has quickly changed. If you'd ask Brian Preston in 1996 his thoughts, it would be different than it is definitely in 2020. I'm going to give Dave that out, mm-hmm. you know, because I think that this his strategy has been out there for a long time. We just want you to know you have a partner where after you graduate, where you have the discipline and the behavior, and you want to go beyond and get master's level education and optimization. Mm-hmm. The Money Guy Show is here. So go check us out, moneyguy.com. Subscribe, ring the bell. We're trying to get to 100,000 by year end. You can be a big part of that. Come join the Money Guy family. I'm your host, Brian Preston, Mr. Bo Hansen. Money Guy team, out.
The Money Guy Show is hosted by Brian Preston. Abound Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with the securities laws and regulations. Abound Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through The Money Guy Show. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.